Thus shall ye think all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. I love that poem, so I wanted to start with it. And one of the reasons that I love it, it's from the Diamond Sutta, is because it always calls to me this deep sense of poignancy and urgency in my own heart and in my own practice, and really reminds me that this experience of being a human being, living a life, is precious, it's fleeting, there's so many experiences that are so easily overlooked or missed. And so I was thinking about this poem and I was thinking about the amazing opportunity that we have here to be able to get up on one of the clear mornings. Guaranteed there have been few of them so far this retreat, but to be able to get up early and see that star at dawn. You know, not commuting in a car at dawn, but here in the silence to be able to go down to the creek and just spend hours watching the bubbles float and what they have to teach us. You know, and that possibility that when we do walking meditation, of course it's not summer, but that flash of lightning is so easily missed and much more likely we'll catch it here. I've been really moved in the interviews by hearing so many stories of this poignancy, of this great longing um, for awakening, for heartfulness, for compassion, for whatever flavor that means for you. So moving to bear witness to that. And so I really wanted to call that in in the beginning as we all begin to settle in more and more and more to this retreat, this possibility of being with the poignancy, with the moment-by-moment fleeting experiences in a way that's treasuring and honoring just exponentially increases. So I know that you've been doing it and I offer it as a continued possibility. One of the teachings which really inspires my own practice and keeps the fire lit under my sense of preciousness of being a human being living a life is actually the story about the four heavenly messengers that the Buddha encountered uh, before his awakening when he was still a young man, actually 29 years old. And so I thought tonight I would share with you that story as well as some stories about some modern day masters who've also grappled with these four messengers um, and what they've learned and what they have to offer us through their example, as well as just some practical offerings about how we could practice them ourselves. When Prince Siddhartha was born, there was a prophecy about him. And the prophecy was that either he would become a great king like his father before him, or he would leave the palace life and become a great spiritual master. And so, of course, his father being the king uh, had quite an agenda that he would continue his preparation to someday become king. You know, any of us that are parents know it's, it's so hard not to have an agenda for our kids. So he had an agenda. And... So he created a life for Prince Siddhartha that was filled with the so-called worldly pleasures. And I'll share with you a little bit of what that looked like from the suttas. This is in the Buddha's words. Lily pools were made for me at my father's house solely for my benefit. Blue lilies flowered in one, light willi- white lilies in another, red lilies in a third, I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban tunic, lower garments, and cloak were all made of Benares cloth. A white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust or grit or dew might inconvenience me. (laughs) So 
many of our lives actually aren't so different than that. Um, in modern culture, we have endless amounts of air conditioning, central heat, swamp coolers, fans, um, solar panels to keep us environmentally sheltered a good portion of the time. And one of the things that I love about practicing here at Spirit Rock is that being with the elements is not a choice. If we want to eat, we have to be in the elements to go down to the dining hall. Such a beautiful opportunity. But this was the life of Prince Siddhartha. When he was in his 20s, though, it was pretty clear that Prince Siddhartha's mind was turning in another direction, and so started what I think of as kind of uh, the war that can happen between parents and children, especially when they're leaving the house and have their own ideas and that letting go process, which is such a teaching and sometimes really challenging. And so Prince Siddhartha would say, please let me leave this sheltered palace and see the town nearby, because uh, as a young person, he had not been allowed to leave. And if he had left to travel from one palace to another, it would be in a very sheltered type of vehicle that they had in those days so that he could not see. He said, please, Dad, let me leave. And the king realized that he was involved in a losing battle. And so he said, okay, son, sure, sure, no problem. I'll let you leave. But let me do a few preparations first. So he quickly went down into the town and said to all the people in the town, all right, my son's coming out. He wants to check this out, and we need to make ready. Here's what you need to do. And so the first thing they did was pour water on the road so that there was no dust. And they whitewashed the houses. They put flowers in the windows. The king made sure that all of the people who were standing in the streets to greet Prince Siddhartha and welcome him were young and beautiful and happy and friendly, you know. So you can imagine like, maybe like a television cast prepared with their lines out there in town waiting for Prince Siddhartha to come through. He did come through, he made his first visit and everything was going according to the king's plan until he came around a corner and out stumbled this man. And this man was bent over really far. He was wrinkled. He was missing some teeth. He was kind of stumbling around. And it turns out that um, he was very hungry. And so he was begging for food and, and just couldn't wait until Prince Siddhartha came by to beg for food. He was afraid he was going to starve. And Prince Siddhartha looked at his attendant. Of course, he had an attendant and said, you know, Chanda, what is this? What is wrong with this man? And um, this is what Chanda said. My prince, this man is what is called an old man. He was not born like this, you know. He was born like everyone else. And at one time when he was young, he was straight and strong and black-haired and clear-eyed. But now he's been a long time in the world. And so he's become like this. Don't concern yourself about him. This is just old age. And the Buddha was stunned. He had never seen this. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, that, that's kind of strange, you know? I mean, kind of unusual to live in a life where you've never seen an old person. But then I started to think about how we, as a culture in this country, uh, treat our elderly and in a generalized way. This is not specific to every person or every family, but in a generalized way, what do we do? We have retirement homes, we have facilities, they're away, and if we don't go to those places, we don't see them. And I started contemplating the fact that if we continue with this pattern, when the baby boomer generation uh, reaches that point where they're going to be needing, you know, retirement facilities and, and assisted care facilities, we're going to have more people kind of behind closed doors than we do running around out in the world. You know, and what's that going to be like? Yeah. So, Prince Siddhartha wasn't satisfied with that visit, obviously. He knew that his father was pulling the wool over his eyes, and so he 
paid a second visit to the town, this time in street clothes, so nobody knew who he was. And so he was able to see the town in its bustling activity and people working in the dust and the grit and you know, the connection between the people um, in that town. And at one point, he came across this man who was acting really strangely. He was stumbling around, he was short of breath, he was covered with purple splotches and kind of drooling. And he said to his attendant, Chanda, what is wrong with that man? And Chanda said, oh, you know, Prince, that man is sick. He's really sick. And the Buddha said, well, you know, how does one, does that just happen? Can it happen to anybody at any time? Oh yes, any time. You know, we know this. A lot of you guys came on retreat sick. I bet you weren't planning it. <laughs> and so um, Prince Siddhartha said, oh, well, you know, this could happen to me. And so I thought about this image of the sick person and again, how that relates to us in the here and now. And what I realized is that a person in this country um, and in kind of modern Western culture type areas who's that sick, covered with purple splotches, he probably had the plague. You don't see them walking and stumbling and drooling down the street very often. You know, again, they're, they're put away, they're hidden so that we can't see, you know, so that we can go to our local store and not have to face that. On that same trip, as he continued his wanderings through the streets, he saw something that disturbed him even more, and that was a man who wasn't moving, who was being carried on a, a stretcher by a bunch of other men. And he said to his attendant, you know, why is that man allowing himself to be carried on a stretcher by these other men? Why doesn't he get up and walk himself? And this is what his attendant said. My prince, that man has died. He has feet, but he cannot run with them. He has eyes, but they do not see anything now. He has ears, but he will never hear anything with them again. He cannot feel anything anymore, neither heat nor cold, neither fire nor frost. He does not know anything anymore. He is dead. So maybe you remember your first encounter with death, if you've had one, the actual experience of either sitting with someone as they died or the experience of sitting with uh, the body of somebody who's died. I don't actually think words touch that experience. I think it's just better to take a breath and leave some space. It's amazing how our culture hides away that process, you know, in the hospitals and, and in different places and, and how hard it is actually if we want to do contemplations on death, if we want to do um, those kind of contemplations or be in direct experience with um, a body when it's died, how hard it is to create an opportunity like that for, in this country. Um, it's not like that in the rest of the world, much of the rest of the world. So Prince Siddhartha had some deep learning from all of that. It's from one of the suttas. I had such power and good fortune, and yet I thought, when an untaught ordinary person who's subject to aging, who is subject to sickness, who is subject to death, who is not safe from these things, sees another who is aged or sick or dead, she is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted for she forgets that she herself is no exception. But I too am subject to aging, subject to sickness, to death, not safe from it. So it cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted 
upon seeing another in such a condition. When I considered this, the vanity of youth, the vanity of health, the vanity of life entirely left me. It's a powerful statement because I think particularly we as a community of practitioners have this great aspiration to meet these messengers of sickness, old age, and death with an open heart. We want to be connected with it. We want to be open. We know there's something to be learned from it. And then there's the direct experience of our humanness. You know, We see somebody near on retreat or in our lives near us who's obviously really, really sick and probably contagious, you know? And there's this inner recoil in our bodies that's almost sometimes pre-thought. You know, we want to wish them well, and we do wish them well. But there's this humanness moment that sometimes creeps in. Not always. Sometimes we meet that, and our hearts just open, and maybe we remember when we were sick on retreat, and it's just this total teaching and opening and connection for us. But to acknowledge our awakeness and our humanness in the face of these messengers. You know, we want to honor our elderly. And then there are these moments where, you know, maybe their faculties aren't quite so together. And they're going on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> and really not stringing sentences together. And we get impatient, of course, you know. That's just part of being a human being, living a life. But it's part of it. So Prince Siddhartha still wasn't satisfied with what he was experiencing down in the town. So he went down one more time, his third visit. And on that visit, he saw an amazing thing. He saw a man dressed um, in an orange robe, I'm sure wrapped uh, perfectly, barefooted, carrying a bowl, walking so carefully, so attentively, each footstep on the dusty ground that didn't have water on it to keep the dust away. Um, his face was clear. His eyes were bright and luminous. There was a happiness and a confidence radiating from this man. And I don't think of that as so different, um, from, honestly, from when I look out at you over these days and just watching you settle in as we all settle in. And what I know is that as this retreat continues, those qualities are just going to grow and grow and grow in every last one of us no matter how horrible we think our practice might be, we each have a different flavor and a different expression of that. But we all have it. So Prince Siddhartha asked his attendant, who is this man? And, and I almost imagine Prince Siddhartha sort of following along behind him, dragging his attendant along, saying, who is this man? It's very compelling. And his attendant said, oh, you know, this, this is a monastic. This is one who's gone forth from um, the happiness that comes from the so-called worldly life and is searching for a higher happiness. And seeing this was what convinced Prince Siddhartha to leave his palace and his worldly life. He also left a wife and a child. I think to myself sometimes that must have been a very hard decision. There must have been a real fire burning in him to uh, make a choice like that. And of course, as we know from the stories, um, his son very soon after, uh, by the age of eight, was able to come join his father and in the holy life. But very painful decision. This was um, Prince Siddhartha's feelings at that time. Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought after what was also subject to these things. Then I thought, 
Why, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things and seeing the danger in them, I sought after the unborn, the unaging, unailing, the deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme release of bondage, Nibbana. We each have a story about how we came to practice. We each have a story about how we got to this retreat. And I don't think it's an accident how often the influence of the four messengers um, comes in in our stories of how we came to this practice and perhaps also how we got to this retreat. And these four messengers can be a huge influence on why we come to practice, and also keeping us continuing to practice. Some of us in this room have been practicing for 30 years and may have started, you know, obviously, we're much younger. And as the aging process happens, as the sicknesses come and go, as we lose our loved ones, as the life-threatening diagnosis come, you know, we realize, wow, you know, those red and white uh, lilies just aren't going to save me from the pain of these messengers. Even for me, my own story, I originally came to practice in my late teens and directly came in uh, due to the messenger of sickness, um, both a sickness of my own and a sickness of my mother's. And then after I had practiced for some years, it was really my mother's death that catapulted me into retreat life. And I had a very direct understanding during the last week of her life when she was in a coma and I was sitting with her that, oh, what my teachers have been talking about all these years of what's possible in a training period of retreat like this is actually what I'm experiencing sitting here with my mother. And I feel like it was her parting gift to me, actually, because I just never turned back. When I think of this metaphor of the four messengers, I think of a time before now, before instant messaging, um, a time when messages were given person to person and messages or maybe telegrams were you know, offered by a messenger and you might be in your house and you're quite comfortable doing whatever it is you're doing and there's this knock on your door and you open the door and there's this messenger with a message. Oh, here, today's your day for sickness. Ah, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, you know, or a different time, there's a knock on the door, and you open the door, and, and, you know, hi, I have a message for you. You've been on the planet in this body for a really long time. Your message is old age. Ah, thank you. you know, or the knock on the door, and you open the door, and there stands death. And you didn't know it was coming today. We never know when it's coming. So I think about the fact of, with that metaphor that there's a knock on the door, but we, you know, sometimes we don't open the door and sometimes we open the door and it's like, well, hi, here's old age. And we can choose to receive the message or not. You know, a lot of people have signs in front of their doors that says, please, no soliciting. <laughs> you know, no messengers today. And we do that. You know, we do that. And it's okay. And it's part of our process. I was also thinking about the great story that Carol told last night about the town in Spain who put the ban on death. No more death until we can, you know, buy land for a new cemetery. It's just like, what if we could do that? All right. No more death until this retreat's over. You know, guaranteed. That'd be nice. 
can't do it, but be nice. So sickness and old age. I actually want to add something to the messengers of sickness and old age, and that's injury. Because for myself, I think of sickness and injury practice as preparation for old age and death practice. Because when we practice with sickness and injury, uh, no matter what our age, it's just more likely if we happen to have the opportunity to reach an older age, that sickness and injury are going to be a part of that. And so we train and we practice and we open our hearts to it. And also sickness and injury are very likely causes of death at some point. So good training. Uh, Yogi came into an interview the other day who um, had a cold, as so many of you do, and, and came in and smiled and said, oh yes, I'm sick. Um, I'm practicing dying. And I was so touched by that because I, I understood exactly what she meant by that. You know, it's beautiful to practice dying when we're sick on retreat or, or in our lives in bed. And I think of sickness, old age, and, and the injury aspect of it as directly pointing us to the fragility of these bodies, of these minds, um, the uncertainty of things. And one of my favorite words in Thai, the Thai language, is the word maine. Maine. It is uncertain. And so when I'm practicing with these things, with the possibility of these things, I'll often say to myself, oh, maine. It's uncertain. And there's something about just that word that almost washes me of a sense of okayness and compassion just through the language itself, maine. There's also a real sense of relativeness to it. And I say that because I work with so many students who are young, and some of them are working with physical issues that we would normally think of as only arising in old age. And then I work with a lot of students who are older, and I talk to them, and they're perfectly healthy and strong and well, like more so than I am even. And so there's a relativeness to this. You know, we each get offered these bodies and my um, name. I heard this great teaching from Upandita the other day, and he encourages students at certain times to practice as if you're old and sick, even if you're not. I thought, oh, that's a brilliant instruction. You know, why wait? Why not do it now? <laughs> I really want to acknowledge uh, the, the presence of these particular messengers of, of sickness, of agingness, of injury on this particular retreat. We've definitely noticed that there is a large theme on this retreat in all of you of these messengers being present. And it's actually one of the reasons that I thought perhaps speaking on this topic might be uh, helpful in some way. And for myself, having had so many times conditions of body and mind that have allowed me to work on many, many different retreats with sickness, with um, injury, with pain, my heart just opens to those of you who are wearing that hat of those messengers on this retreat. And right now it's some of you, and then some of you will get well, and someone else will get sick, and your body's well, and then all of a sudden something else comes up. It's really quite changeable. But I talked to a few yogis as they're entering onto this retreat who weren't feeling well, and, and I could feel the, the kind of combination of uh, stoicness, openness, and subtle disappointment. Oh, I wish it was different. I wish I wasn't sick. I wish I didn't have this diagnosis. I wish I, I wasn't working with this injury. And um, I want to bow to that. You know, 
we all know that there's suffering in that. I want to bow to it and include it because I really think when we're practicing with these messengers, it's the noble practice. When we get the opportunity to practice with these things on retreat, where the pressures of life aren't so with us, um, there's so many opportunities to learn. And really, it's kind of what we're all practicing for. And so if you're practicing with this at any point on the retreat, it's where the rubber hits the road. You know, you don't have the option to have some pain-free sitting because there's illness or injury or whatever. And there it is. You know, there it is. So I'll tell you a story of a kind of dramatic injury that I had on one of these two-month retreats and what I learned from it in terms of these messengers. And it's really interesting to tell this story here on this retreat because it happened on one of these retreats years ago, and I'm very aware that some of you in this room were present when it happened. And so you hear a little bit of what that process was like for me. So I came into this two-month retreat, and I was totally on fire for practice. So excited to be here. And my mind and my heart were really ready to go for it. And so I walked in day one and started doing these sitting meditations that were hours long without giving up. And my mind and my heart were ready for that, and my body definitely was not. It's kind of a no-brainer, but you know, sometimes the fire for practice kind of overwhelms you. <laughs> it does for me anyway. And it certainly did back then. And so I didn't listen to my body, and I kept practicing in that way. And I finally got up from this one sitting to the seventh day of the retreat to find that I couldn't walk. I stumbled out of the hall. And um, I sustained a pretty serious knee injury, actually. Now, I always hesitate to tell this story because there's this, <laughs> you know... <laughs> I can just see all the little thoughts possibly going off in your mind. Oh, no, I do two-hour sittings. I want to blow my knee. You won't. I mean, maybe you will, but... <laughs> it was really the conditions that I was under. It was walking into the retreat, not settling in, not listening to my body, um, being extreme in the same way that the Buddha was extreme before his enlightenment. Oh, I think I'll eat one grain of rice per week. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know? And he discovered, no, that's not a good idea. Well, for this body here, for me in this life, that was not a good idea. For others of you, no problem. We're all different. But the first thing that I learned from this, you know, messenger of, of, um, of loss, of mobility that... Um, you know, can also often come with the messenger of aging. First thing I learned, listen to the body. Listen. Not to our ideas of what we think we're capable of, not to our ideas about what we think we need to do to take care of the body. Listen to the body itself. And that deep listening can actually permeate through the rest of our practice, through that doorway. So I went into a lot of despair when that happened, obviously. I really felt like I lost my practice. And it was day seven of the retreat, and I had seven weeks to go. And I was staying. I wasn't <laughs> going anywhere. You know, I, I live on the... My bedroom's on the third story of my house, so I figured, well, I can either sit up there for seven weeks... You know, and not go down the stairs, or I can stay here and learn something. So I stayed. And one of the things that I learned right away was this letting go of the forms. I was quite attached at that point to the forms of sitting and walking. And I couldn't do walking meditation. I couldn't even sit in a chair for a while. I just had to sit on my bed with my legs out. And so what I learned was this thing that we've been teaching this whole retreat about attitude of mind. It was like, okay, I can't do the forms, and the body's not really working so well. How's the mind? Oh, utter despair. 
and it took me a long time to come into intimacy with that. It, was, it really swept me off my feet for, um, for a few days. You know, and so learning to focus on these attitudes of mind. Oh, you know, hating this injury is like this. You know, the fear of the pain is like this. The grief of the loss of what was is like this. This is what Carol was talking about last night. And that's part of the process of these messengers. The fear, the grief, um, the flexibility to move with what's offered instead of what we want to have happen with our bodies. And I noticed how um, this thing about pain, I bet you've noticed this too. Have you noticed how when there's a pain in the body, the sensation that we would call a pain in the body, that the attention just naturally collects around that? So, you know, for a knee injury, it's like a beacon. <laughs> attention, knee. And the whole world becomes the sensations in that knee. Nothing else exists. You know, nothing else, the whole body is just the knee. The whole world is just the knee. Everything, that's all that's happening. And out of that, I developed this uh, practice that really, really helped me because what I saw was that, oh, you know, this pain, this loss, this whole thing, this has become a main event. You know, and not only that, everyone on the retreat was treating it like a main event. My teachers were treating it like a main event. <laughs> You know, in the sense of, how's it doing, and checking in, and, you know, sometimes I look at them and say, well, can I talk about the rest of my practice now? <laughs> you know, um, there's just only so much I could talk about the thing. Um, so this quality of main eventness, And so I started asking myself periodically throughout the day, oh, is this the main event? And sometimes it was. And then I was able to notice, oh, sometimes it's not. And I could catch that with the thoughts. Um, and then sometimes I'd almost say to myself like a mantra, you know, Heather, this is not the main event. Oh, right. I have a whole rest of the body. The sun's shining outside. I can watch the birds on the trees. Like, there's way more happening than this. So you can translate this a lot of ways. You know, I'm sure each of us today had a main event of some sort or another, is it the main event? Great quote from Ajahn Chah that I definitely use as a teaching and a practice. It says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go of completely, complete peace. Isn't it easy to just jump towards the complete peace? I want the complete peace, you know? But sometimes, especially with these messengers, checking out the moments of a little peace allow space to expand into a greater peace instead of leaping over that. And that's how I use that teaching. I also learned about compassion. And we're going to be teaching the compassion practice uh, later on in this retreat. But what I want to say about it now is it's just this sense of caring about the suffering. It's so important. And so what I say to myself when I practice compassion is just something really simple. Uh, and I often direct it towards the body and the mind that's suffering around the ailments of the body, I just say, I care. I care about this suffering. Through this caring, may my suffering be eased. Through this caring, may my suffering be eased. Not may conditions change, but by the caring, can conditions change. And I also spend a lot of time in compassion practice, especially towards the body, um, being intimately connected with the body. And so sometimes I'll do it like this and just hold myself. It's like, oh yeah, there's a little rocking. Because there's the thoughts in the mind and there's the heart that's opening to the caring and the suffering and then there's just the direct experience of the body itself. Or sometimes I'll put one hand on my heart and the other one on my belly. And just breathe with it. Here it is, this teacher. 
I also think that it's so easy to overly identify with the body that we really need a sense of humor about all this. So I'll tell you one little story. Um, and it's a story about working with aging, but you'll probably laugh at it because I did it in my mid-20s. But what I realized is actually aging starts the moment you're born. So it's a practice about aging. And in my family, um, our genetics are to go prematurely gray. And so I got my first gray hair actually when I was 17 and immediately pulled it out. And it's kind of interesting, actually. I got that gray hair at the very same time as I started meditating. <laughs> I never actually thought about that. <laughs> so anyway, immediately pulled it out. And when I started doing retreats, I had already developed quite this habit of pulling out the gray hairs because I didn't have very many of them. And I was in my early 20s. And so there I'd be on retreat. I'd be standing in my mirror brushing my teeth, and all of a sudden the toothbrush would be down, and these hairs would be being pulled out. And I'm just watching this. And, you know, the first thing was like judgment. Heather, you're here to, do, to learn about these teachings of impermanence and accept what's happening and all the stuff that we tell ourselves. And here you are pulling out your gray hairs. You know, so that was the first thing that happened. And then I just cracked up. I was just standing there, you know, in my room, looking in the mirror, and I just laughed. I thought, you know what this is? This is fighting impermanence practice. And I took it on as a practice. I did it for years on retreat. I totally embraced it. It's like, fine, you know, it's the nature of being human to, to have moments of struggle against impermanence, to have moments of struggle against aging. It's hard. I'm going to take this on. And so I just noticed when I was standing in front of my mirror and the impulse would come to pull out a gray hair, and I'd be totally intimate with it. Great. Okay, where is it? Can I just pull out that one and not the brown ones around it? And okay, I got it and pull and feel the sensation and really be with fighting aging, fighting impermanence. Be with the experience of the struggle. I learned so much from that instead of just going, oh, I shouldn't be doing that, you know, and shoving down the impulse every time and feeding it with aversion and fear. I just let it be. And what I noticed after a bunch of years was that I stopped doing it. Every once in a while, I still do it. But mostly, I stopped doing it. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is that there was just a spaciousness with allowing this messenger to be a part of my life that made the reactivity lessen. And that's the possibility of this practice. And the other reason is that at this point, I have so many gray hairs that I'd have bald spots if I kept pulling them out. <laughs> so I figured maybe not such a good idea. I'm sure some of you can, you know, relate with me. Uh, so then there's Deepama. Do you know about Deepama? She's so amazing. She's such an inspiration for me. And the way that Deepama, who was um, a great um, woman, uh, lay woman teacher, lived in Calcutta, a teacher to many of our teachers, and the way that she came into the practice was through the messengers of sickness, also a little bit old age, and death. And what happened to her was she longed for a child, and she was married, she tried to have a child for a long time, couldn't conceive, finally conceived, had a beautiful girl named Deepa, which is where she got her name, Deepa Ma, Deepa's Ma. And then a couple of years later, a miracle happened, and she had another baby. Um, and soon after the baby was born, the baby died. It's so particularly poignant when that happens. And Deepama was thrown into just inconsolable grief and got quite sick and not functional. And so her husband was taking care of her and taking care of Deepa, her daughter. And one day he came home from work. He was also working. And he said, you know, Deepa, Ma, I don't feel so well. And a couple of hours later, he died. Many of you know this story. And Deepama was plunged into inconsolable grief and just an illness and got so sick that she actually said 
that she thought she might die of a broken heart unless she did something about her state of mind. She asked herself, what can I take with me when I die? She looked around at her dowry, her silk saris, the cold jewelry, even at her daughter. She said, as much as I loved her, I knew I couldn't take her. So I said, let me go to the meditation center. Maybe I can find something there that I can take with me when I die. And of course she did. She found a huge something and was able to offer that along with the offering of having moved through the fire of her own pain to many, many students. How many of us are here for that? To look for that thing we can take with us when we die? The Tibetans have a saying that is very familiar to many of us. Death is certain. The time of death is uncertain. So a question that I reflect on regularly is, how do you want to meet your death? Do you want to meet your death like Gandhi did with the word of God on his lips as he fell after he was hit with the assassin's bullet? For me, I have a little more humble aspiration, actually. I live in a rural area, and there's a lot of two-lane roads. And sometimes I come around the corner of one of those roads, and there's a car crossing the double yellow line to pass around someone else. And I think to myself, you know, I just hope I don't meet my death with a four-letter word on my lips. <laughs> you know, that's my wish. It's humble. <sighs> One of the main purposes of doing this practice actually is to prepare for death. And here on retreat, we have this particularly amazing opportunity to develop intimacy and familiarity with the process of death in our moment-by-moment moment experience. You know, we can start with something simple like the breath. And when I give meditation instructions on the breath, I quite often give them as being intimate with the direct experience of each breath as it births, lives its life, and passes away. I must confess, when I first started this practice, I had a very ambivalent relationship with the breath. Uh, it was both what compelled me to start this practice because there was some peace and ease that arose. But after that initial peace and ease that allowed me to start this whole arduous journey, I found the breath excruciatingly boring. And I know some of you feel the same at various moments. And that went on for me actually for quite a long time. And I still remember this one day, I was so bored. And it's funny how we use this term, but I remember quite clearly, it was what I was thinking, I was like, if I just have to be with another breath, I'm gonna die. <laughs> you know? And that was the wake-up call for me. That was the messenger coming in, and I thought, oh, well, fine. You know, if I feel like I'm so bored, if I'm gonna take another breath and have to be with it, I'm just gonna die, I'm just not gonna take another breath. And so I didn't. I let the breath exhale, and then I just paused and didn't invite another breath to inhale. And when one wanted to come, just said, not now. I, I want to see this. And I sat there and I sat there. And I mean, you know what happens when you hold your breath. You start to turn red and hot and shaky and you feel like you're going to die. And I just sat there. Not for too long, but for long enough. And when that next in-breath came, I got it. It was the most fascinating thing in the entire universe. And what I understood was, oh, breath of life. This breath is sustaining my life. I knew that intellectually. So what? Then I knew it directly. And it changed my relationship with the breath. 
And so quite frequently, I practice with the breath as an object of uh, the death messenger and, and teach it to others. And a thing I'll do um, from time to time is to count down 10 breaths, knowing that when I finish my last breath, it's as if it's my last breath. Those 10 breaths are so poignant. It almost calls up in me the times that I've sat by the bedsides of those who are in their very last breaths. And I can breathe in that experience and really connect and deepen. You know, the sounds birth, live their lives and pass away. Sensations the same until as some of you have started mentioning in interviews, you know, the body at some point just becomes points of flickering sensation held in space. Birth, death, birth, death, birth, death. Our thoughts and our stories have lifespans, births and deaths. And one of the things that I love that Ajahn Sumedha suggests is that you look particularly at the spaces in between sp thoughts and the spaces in between stories. Find that gap and abide there. Uh, the spaces between our arisings and passings of sense of self. And sometimes as we practice in this way, there comes a point when we just become filled with grief and with fear and it feels like everything is dying. And it's really painful. And this is a normal part of what can come visit us in our practice. It's really the experience of death knocking on our door again. And at some point, even that grief and that fear pass away. And it's interesting how we use that word, pass away. Um, and what we're left with is this peace and stability and equanimity. It's really the Vipassana happiness that Howie so beautifully talked about the other night. One of the great practitioners of our time who had the opportunity to face her death and live to tell about it was um, the nun Tenzin Palma. Do you know about Tenzin Palma? She was the first Western nun ordained by the Karmapa, I believe. And she's an English woman, and she spent 12 years in the Himalayas in a cave at 13,000 feet practicing. Very inspiring to me. And at one point in her practice, there was this huge blizzard, the hugest blizzard that had ever come in all 12 years. And it snowed, and it snowed, and it snowed for days and days and days. And at one point, um, the chimney that came out from her little stove in her cave broke. And she was plunged into darkness. And she realized in that moment that she had been buried alive. She was entombed by snow. This was her experience. I really thought I was going to die. I had a lot of time to think about it. Can you imagine? It was interesting. I wasn't worried. I figured, okay, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I reviewed my life to try to think of anything wrong that I'd done and what I'd done right. I felt I'd been so lucky. I met so many great lamas and received so many wonderful teachings. There were few regrets. As she continued practicing with this, however, and meditating with this, she heard her own inner wisdom, her own inner guidance. And what her own inner guidance told her in that moment, as she was totally preparing for her own death, ready to go, it said, dig. <laughs> <laughs> and so she got a saucepan lid, which was the only thing she had to dig with, and dug, I don't know how many 20s of feet up through the snow. It took her all day. Um, can you imagine what that must have been like, you know, in the middle of a snowpack that could have caved in behind you at any moment in true entombment and finally broke through to the outside and realized, oh, snow breathes. The air in my cave wasn't stale. But what an amazing opportunity and what powerful response. You know, we can each have that response. We can look at our lives. Um, we can see if we have regrets if forgiveness needs to be offered to ourselves or others, if amends need to be made, 
Um, spontaneous life reviews often happen on retreat. You don't need to call them in. They'll come if they're supposed to come, but to use them as an opportunity to work with this messenger. That fourth messenger, the one on a spiritual path. I think of that fourth messenger really widely. I think about it as anyone who turns their heart and their life towards that highest happiness that Howie was speaking about the other night. They don't need to be monastic. They don't need to be special in any way. Anyone who turns their heart and their life over to, hmm, there might be another way. There might be something else that I could find that I could take with me when I die, this Deepama said. And so what I did was really try to weave through this talk the stories of these masters, you know, starting with the Buddha, Deepama, Tenzin Palma, um, and their responses to these messengers. And not responses that feel unattainable, responses that we can actually connect with in our own practice in our lives. We can look and see if we have regrets. You know, we've lost children. We've come to the meditation center like Deepama did. You know? But I also think of this in terms of those in our lives that we've sat next to as they were sick and as they were dying. Um, you know, the loved ones in our lives who are aging, whether they mean it gracefully or not, they're still our messengers. And when they do meet it gracefully, when they do meet it with open-heartedness and awakeness and aliveness, sometimes, amazingly, after a lifetime of shutdownness, something happens at death's door and people just open. It's amazing. I've heard so many stories like that. And that's our teacher of this fourth messenger. We might have someone on this retreat who's our fourth messenger who really inspires our practice. When we see them walking by, our heart lifts and we think, oh, they're really doing it. In that moment before the judgment kicks in, oh, I'm really not. You know, it's like that inspiration, that uplift. They're searching, I feel their longing and I feel the fruits of their practice. So I leave you with this question of who is that for you? Who is your fourth messenger? It might be many. Who inspires you in your practice? And I want to take a moment in the end here just to call them in, to call them into this room if it feels appropriate to you, to let this room fill with these beings who have taught us, who have inspired us, who have set an example for us, about how to live an awake and compassionate life. And as we do this, knowing that we are also included in this circle of fourth messengers, because it would be hard for me to believe that for each of us in this room, there isn't one person that we haven't touched, that we haven't inspired in our lives about the possibilities. So call them in, let them surround you. Make sure they have your back as you sit here through everything that's been coming and going, huh? Wakefulness is the way to life. The fool sleeps as if he were already dead, but the master is awake and she lives forever. He watches, she is clear. How happy he is, for he sees that wakefulness is life. How happy she is following the path of the awakened. With great perseverance, she meditates, seeking, 
freedom and happiness. So I offer these words for your reflection and thank you deeply for the kindness of your attention. <clears throat>